A few weeks ago, we started this series called Following God When No One Else Does, and uh, we love the title because it so speaks to our culture, and especially the time we live in. For many of us, uh, we, if we, if faith can be a lonely place, especially in our workplace, maybe in our families, where you may be one of many, one amongst many who believe in Jesus. And so, so this, uh, the life of Daniel is very applicable to us this morning. And so this morning, I, we want to, we're continuing in chapter 7 of Daniel. But before we get to chapter 7, I want to take a little bit of a different route. Uh, we're going to jump into the New Testament for a little bit. Um, and, and so we're going to come at it and we're going to ask a question that I hope by the end of the day, we can all answer. The story is said of a of a rather self-important individual. Um, He had gone into the hospital for treatment and he found himself waiting in the waiting room. He waited and he waited and he waited and no one had come out to see him. He had checked in, everything was done and no response. So out of frustration, he burst into the nurse's station and he said, do you not know who I am? The secretary there uh, quite calmly pressed the intercom button and announced to the hospital, ladies and gentlemen, we have a gentleman here who does not know who he is, and if you can assist, please do. If you were to go around asking the question, do you not know who I am? Or even in another way, who am I? Who do you think I am? You would look at that person or you would, people would look at you and go, there's one of two things happening. One, dementia is already hit and he has a problem figuring out who he is. Or there's an element of pride. He wants people to know or she wants people to know who they are and they think they're important. There's, there is some sort, some sort of an issue going on here. But there is someone in the New Testament that asks that question. That very question, who do you say that I am? And so today I want to take a quick moment to look at this question. Because so often in our culture, in our situations, in our society, in our workplaces, in our families, in our life, in, our, in the media that we consume, in a lot of these areas, that same question is being asked. Who is Jesus? And that question, if you haven't figured it by now, is Jesus asking his disciples, they're on their, on their way, they're traveling from one place to another, and they, uh, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that, or what do people say about me? What do they think that I am? And so the disciples give him some answers. They, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, but he's like, all right, that's all good. I mean, I, I get it. But question is, who do you say that I am? And that had, they had to think about that a little bit, and Peter offers an answer. But today, I want us to think, take a moment to think about that for ourselves. Who do we say he is, right? And the reason we're going there, even though we're in the book of Daniel, we're going there for a reason, because Daniel lived in a time that was very similar to ours. He lived in a time where His God was not the popular one. His God was not the majority God. His God was not the one that everyone worshipped. As a matter of fact, last week we talked about how he ended up in the lion's den because of his refusal to worship the God of uh, uh, of his culture. 
They set up a statue and said, anyone who worships any other god than this one will be, will be put, into, put into the lion's den. And so you see the circumstance that he's in. And sometimes we find ourselves in the same place. We find ourselves realizing no one else worships this God. As a matter of fact, they, they can't figure out why I would worship this God. Or as a matter of fact, they ridicule me for, for even thinking about God or, or holding on to the values that this book talks about. And so we find ourselves there. And so it's good for us to ask that question, who do we say Jesus is? And one of the reasons I also bring that up, in 2014, there was a book released by a historian, Bart Ehrman. Now, if you're familiar with Bart Ehrman, he, he did a lot of historical study. He spent years and years studying about the historical Jesus, the person in history who lived at that time, who was, whose name was Jesus, who did all the work that the Bible claims he did. He studied this Jesus. Now, Ehrman, he grew up in the church, he was evangelical, he believed, he, he said the same things that we say, but somewhere along the way, something happened where he lost his faith. And in his book, this is what he contends, and this is what our culture, and even the culture of Daniel's day would say something along the same lines. His contention is this, the question he asked, was Jesus really God? Is Jesus really God? Or did we put that title on him. In the New Testament, if you read through all the accounts of Jesus, did he ever say the words, I am God? Or did someone put that title on him? Did his followers at some point come in and say, I think we should put this title. I think we revere you as God and so we worship you. Ehrman's finally concludes that that's, that's exactly what happened. Searching through history, searching through a lot of the written material, he says there's not an instance where Jesus explicitly says, I am God. Now, how do you deal with that? Do we immediately put up our blockers and say, no, 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 that's all false. Jesus said he is, but where, where in the Bible is it? Where do you find it? So today, we're going to take a moment to look at that. The question we're going to wrestle with, we're going to kind of grapple with today, did Jesus explicitly claim to be God? Or is that something that's made up? Because, and the reason why we're going there today is because if we don't have an answer for it, the culture around us is going to give us an answer. They're going to package Jesus in the way they think he should be packaged. They're going to package Jesus in the way their lifestyles demand. And they're going to package Jesus in the way they desire for him to be packaged. Some may claim that he was a good teacher. Some may claim that he was a prophet. Some may claim a lot of different things about him. But the question is, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this sound chamber, who do you say he is? That's the question we're going to deal with in Mark chapter 14. We're going to go into Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 64. We're just going to start there. But let me lay the, give you the lay of the land, a little bit of foundation here. In chapter 16, Jesus has been arrested. Passover is done, and this is right before his crucifixion. Jesus has been arrested, and they have brought him to the council, to the Sanhedrin, where the high priest and the, all the other priests are there, and they are, their goal at this point 
is to charge Jesus with a crime. They want to kill him, but they can't just go out and kill him. It's illegal to do so. So instead they go, we'll find something that he says or that he has done that is worthy of, his, worthy of death. And the Bible clearly states in chapter 16 that false accusers came and they said, oh, he said he would tear down the temple or he said he would do this. And none of it stuck. And so finally, the chief priests, he stands up and he has one question for Jesus. And this is his question. And I'm going to start, pick up in verse 61 through 64. This is the high priest asking, are you Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Upon hearing this, upon hearing the answer that Jesus provided the chief priest, the chief priest tore his robes. It's not a couple of buttons torn out. He tore his robes. And for a chief priest who has put on robes dictated by scriptures, it was holy. It was, there was a lot of meaning and symbolism built into his robes. And for him to tear that was a big deal. There was something said in that exchange that caused such a wild reaction that we probably should pay attention to. To answer this question, what exactly did Jesus say? Because he says, the chief priest basically asked him, are you, the, are you Christ, the, the son of the blessed? I mean, don't see a lot of big flags, red flags in there. Or his response is, yes, I am, and you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds. What was it that was so charged that caused a reaction like this. So to answer that question, now we'll make our way back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we see a little bit of what Jesus meant. See, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is connecting to chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And this is what he says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. This is an interesting passage, and we're going to kind of break it down, but just real quick, you see there is the scene of a courtroom. And let me give you... Uh, the lay of the land in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is seeing a vision. He is he's asleep in bed, and God is speaking to him through a vision. And in this part of the vision, he sees the Ancient of Days, or in Scripture, the Ancient of Days was God himself. God is seated on the throne, and there is one like a son of man coming up in the clouds, and he's coming up to glory, he's coming up to dominion, he's given kingdom that will last forever, and this is what Jesus proclaims to be. But again, if you're like me, maybe this is the first time you're hearing about this, or if you're like me, uh, you've read it over and over and going, what is this saying? Because this makes, this is a lot of material here that does not make a lot of sense. So for that, let's work our way back from chapter, chapter 7, verses 1 onwards. We'll work our way. 
Now, there is a big shift that happens. Chapter 1 through 6, if you haven't had a chance to listen these last few weeks, about five weeks or so, if you haven't had a chance to listen to those sermons, I would highly encourage you, go on our website, go look up our podcast, great sermons on the life of Daniel, on the life of these young men who were plucked out of their communities, who were plucked out of their families, and they were taken into a foreign land, into a foreign culture, and yet... They're able to live lives demanded by Scripture, demanded by their God. And so it relates to a lot of us. It relates to us, especially as we strive to be Christians, as we strive to be people of faith in a culture that opposes it. So we live in very similar scenarios and all of a sudden, we come to chapter 6, and you see the lion's den, and it's this glorious moment where Daniel is cast into the, uh, the pit. Nothing happens to him. The king brings him out. The king is baffled as to why the lions would, wouldn't consume him. God receives all the glory. And then you come to chapter 7, and things take a different turn. Now, all of a sudden, let me give you, let's actually read chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and you see a, the turn here. This is Daniel writing, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he laid in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four, base of, four, excuse me, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told... Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there, were, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of these, the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in the horn were eyes like eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. How many of you understood that? I mean, there's a lot that's happening here in... If you're like me, you're baffled by it. Um, I, as, as I was going through the book, I remember when I, was, when I was younger, I loved reading these portions because, you know, growing up on DC Comics, this is the kind of stuff that you crave, right? I mean, there's a lot of action. There's so much, it's so much weird stuff that, that you're like, how is this all going to work out? And as you grow older, you realize that it's not just what you read. At, at one point, I thought there were actual four beasts and all of that. And today, we're going to find out that it's a little beyond that. There is a lot of symbolism. There is a lot of imagery that God is using. You see, their book takes a shift. The book goes from a lot of stories, from a lot of narrative, to a different genre of scripture. And, my, and this particular genre is what theologians and 
uh, if, you, if you study the Bible, you would call it apocalyptic scripture. Now, apocalyptic scripture basically is this. It talks a lot about prophecy of what is going to happen. What is going to happen. But now, one thing you'll notice, in, especially in Scripture, is it talks a lot in symbols. It talks a lot in images. It talks a lot. It's almost like reading the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings. You see a lot of stuff that on the outside looks weird but has great meaning has great, uh, there's a lot of history behind it. There's a lot of, the characters are not just what you see on the screen. There is a lot more behind it. So some of you are probably wondering, why would we even continue the series after chapter six? And you're not alone. A lot of preachers out there, a lot of teachers will actually stop at chapter six because it's easy. All right, the lion's den, it's the crux of the whole book. We're ending on a high note and leave the rest. And so often, especially when we come to books like this or we come to passages like this, we have to grapple with this question, how do we deal with apocalyptic scripture? How do we deal with things that don't make sense, that it's not a story, you don't see immediately what's going on? How do we deal with stuff like that? So in the church, we've taken one of two approaches. The first approach is what I just mentioned. Sometimes we just completely ignore it. We just say, we pretend it's not there, get to chapter 6, and we're moving on to the next sermon series, right? Or in our own private readings, we get to certain places in the Bible, like how many of you have read through the entire book of Numbers? Or, okay, we have a few. <laughs> it's hard because there's so many numbers, there's so many, or the entire book of Revelation, we get to these books and we look at it and go, why is this in here? What is the purpose behind it? We see all these images, and it baffles us. But here's the thing that, that we ought to remember. That all scripture is inspired by God. Genesis through Revelation. All the story, all the poetry, all the history, all the letters, and the scripture of prophecy, all of it is inspired. And if it is so inspired, there is value behind it. It redeems us. It does something for us. God has put it in his scriptures for a reason. And for us, it's beneficial if we do find that out. So our first approach is we don't deal with it at all. Or the second approach, and some of us fall into this trap, and many in the kingdom, many in the church have fallen into this trap, is that we spend so much time trying to figure out what all of these elements mean, what all these beasts mean, what the horns mean, that we get stuck there. Sometimes leading us down wrong paths, leading us down rabbit trails that we were never meant to go in. So often, every now and then, you will hear either on, on TV or on the internet, you will hear of preachers who have predicted a thing that's going to happen. They, they will look at the signs in the universe or they will look at the scripture and they will compare it and they will be like, all right, Jesus is coming on so-and-so date. The date comes and goes and Jesus has not come back. And there are pitfalls to this sort of method that we've spent so much time in it that we realize that we're missing out on what God has called us to do. And so this morning, I want us to look at, consider a more nuanced method. As I mentioned, all of the scripture is inspired. All of the scripture is given to us with a purpose, and it's beneficial for us to figure out why. 
First, we have to understand why this was given in the first place. In Daniel's context, in Daniel's, when Daniel is receiving this vision, he is, he is amongst a people that have been languishing in exile for years and years and years. Daniel is not the young man he used to be. He is much older now. He's probably in his 60s or in his 70s, and he's lived most of his life in exile. He's lived in a place where it's no, not home. He's lived away from his people, and his heart's Christ. How long, oh God, how long will you keep us here? His people have been crying out, and to them, God sends a vision in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this suffering, and he says, this is for you. There is, a, there is a message in the scripture, and the message is simply this. And the message for all apocalyptic scripture is this, that no matter how crazy, no matter how many kingdoms come, how many kingdoms go, how, how, uh, how crazy our society gets, how chaotic it is, how much suffering you endure, how much tribulation you endure, how many trials you may face, the, the truth and the fact of the matter is at the end, God wins. No matter what you face, no matter what comes against you, no matter what laws are written, at the end of the day, God wins. And to this people who are, who are in this pit, who are struggling, who are struggling to find a reason to keep on living, God is reminding them that hold on, your deliverance is coming. And for us this morning, there are some of us, there are many of us, I would, I would argue, that find ourselves in similar pits, find ourselves in similar situations. We've been crying out, how long, oh God, will I go through this? How long will my family be broken apart? How long will my relationships be this way? And we've been crying and we've been seeking and God is saying, no matter how bad things get, there is an end to it all. And that end is his victory. The second thing that we ought to remember in our approach to such scripture is this. See, when we read visions and prophecies, we realize that some of these images, and we'll talk through these beasts in a moment, some of these images are easy for us to understand because they're simple. They're, they've been revealed to us. But some of them are not. They're a little more complicated. Some of them, we, we have no idea what they are. In moments like this, especially with dealing with apoc- apocalyptic scripture, we ought to take this stance of looking back at what has already been revealed to us with certainty and looking forward with the confidence that God will reveal it. <coughs> Excuse me. We look back and we see what God has already revealed to us. We look back and see that God has already explained it. He's interpreted it. He's already given us wisdom to understand it. But we look forward with the confidence that the right time, it'll be revealed. The author Rodney Stortz, he tells a story, and this is pre-GPS days, pre-Google Maps, pre-Waze days. I mean, he, he had an appointment. And so he calls the person that he was supposed to meet with, and he says, hey, give me directions how to get to you. So he received handwritten notes. He received handwritten notes that said, go straight on this road, take a right at this light, take a left uh, somewhere here. And the, the instructions went on. And to, at a certain point, 
the instructions read, when you come to this intersection with a sign that's just hanging in the air, take a right. Now, Rodney looked at those instructions and he, as much as he could try to figure out what that meant, he just could not. What does it mean for a sign that's just hanging in the air? And so he decides, you know what, I'm just going to go. I don't know what it means. I may never get there because I don't know what I'm looking for, but I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to drive. He follows all the directions. He follows, take a right, take a left, go keep going on this road. And finally, he gets to this intersection. He looks up, and there's a sign hanging in the air. The sign, the, the, the bar that was holding it was broken, and so someone had decided they put it on two strings and hung it from two trees. And to him, the directions basically said, when you get to a sign that's hung in air or hanging in the air, take a right. You see, he could have spent all his time trying to figure out what that meant before he got on his journey. But sometimes we have to get get in the car, get on the road, and we'll figure it out as we get there. The same with Scripture. Sometimes... God gives us images. God gives us words that may not make sense in the moment, may not make sense to what we're accustomed to, what we're understanding in the moment. But as we go along in our journey, he makes it clear. Now, there are some of us in this room that God has called us to do something, and his instructions are not that clear. God has called us to step out and do it. And he says, along the way, I'll make it clear. But for us, we are accustomed to having all the information before we do it. And God is saying, just step out and watch. Because as the time comes, it'll be revealed. Confidence in knowing that, or certainty in knowing that he has revealed in the past. And confidence in knowing that he will reveal as the time comes. When the time comes for you and me to know what he has for us, he will reveal it. And especially when it comes to scripture like this, especially when it's talking about prophecies, we often want to figure it all out when we're not supposed to be doing that at all. We're supposed to go do what God has called us to do, live as God has called us to live, do do unto others as God has called us to do, and not to figure some things out. There are certain mysteries in the scripture that are kept as mysteries. First, we look back with certainty. And then we look forward with confidence. We look back with certainty on what God has made clear and forward in confidence that God will continue to make clear as we go along. So as we come back to Daniel chapter 7, I know you're at the edge of your seats. You're trying to figure out what all these beasts mean. So let me, let me lay it out for you. The first beast is the image of a lion with, with wings. And if you've been here before, you've seen the images on the, on the screen. The lion with the wings was the kingdom of Babylon. That was their emblem. That was, they had an emblem of a, of a lion with wings. And then Daniel sees another, he comes up to another beast that comes out of the water, and it's a bear with one side raised up higher than the others, and it comes out with three ribs in its mouth. It's a grotesque-looking moment right there, but this is the next empire that would come and replace the one that just passed. And it would happen in just a matter of months from this vision. Because 
While Daniel's having this vision, it was the Babylonian Empire. And then soon after, just a few weeks ago, we talked about how that empire was overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. And you see the Medes and the Persians come up. And then you have the next beast that is coming up. It's a leopard with four heads and four, and four wings. And this is the Greek empire that most, most Bible scholars assume. But then, and here's where, here's where a little bit of this confidence and certainty comes in. The next beast, the fourth beast comes in, and we can't even call it an animal. It's so grotesque looking. It's so weird looking that Daniel has a hard time reconciling what it is. Most of us, most scholars, don't know what it is. There's a lot of argument back and forth as to it could be this king or it could be that king. The reality is we don't know. And here's where we have scripture that talks clearly about the past. And it says, with certainty, this is what's been revealed. But there is something that hasn't been revealed yet. It may happen in our lifetime. It may happen after or it may happen at some point in eternity. We will find out. And that's where we come at it with this perspective. That there is certainty of what God has revealed. And confidence in that he will reveal as time goes on. So when it comes to scripture like this, to answer that question, how do we deal with apocalyptic scripture? We deal with it with certainty in the past, confidence in the future. All right, so let's get back to, again, at this point, now you're wondering, what does this all have to do with the question that I asked in the beginning? I mentioned Jesus, and then I went off on this tangent about beasts and and all that. So let's get back to it. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, and then 13 through 14. As I look, and this is his vision is continuing, and so uh, da- uh, Daniel seeing this. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was pure wool. His thorn, a throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." Then it continues, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Here's a picture of God described as the ancient of days. The Ancient of Days talks about God himself, the creator. And Daniel, his vision goes from the, the waters where all these beasts come up, and now it transitions to a courtroom. And in this courtroom, God, the Ancient of Days, takes a seat at the throne. And all of a sudden, there, are, there is this son of man that's coming up in the clouds. And he comes up, and he's given glory and honor. He's given dominion. He's given a kingdom. But there is a task at hand. It says, and the books were opened for judgment. You see, all these kingdoms that came, all these kingdoms that that went, now they've come to the final moment of reckoning. There is a moment of judgment at hand. This son of man would come up and he would judge every kingdom. He would judge every beast. And it says it destroyed them all. How does this relate to us? And how does this relate to the conversation that Jesus had 
with the high priest. When the high priest asks Jesus, are you Christ, the son of the blessed? He responds with, I am, and you will see the son of man come up in the clouds, and he will take on this kingdom, and he will judge. See, immediately, as soon as they heard this, Their thoughts, their minds went back to this image where Daniel had prophesied 500 years ago that a man would come up, the son of man would come up and would judge them. And immediately, Jesus may not have said, I am God, follow me, I am God, fear me, but he, in coded language, he told them exactly what they needed to hear, that he was the son of man. Going back to the the question that I asked, did Jesus claim that he was, a, he was God or was that a title placed on him? He is God. You may ask the question, what about the, I may have, I, you may have heard the term son of God or son of man. And how, why wouldn't Jesus just simply say, I am the son of God? So going back into the context, especially in the Jewish context that he was in, the term son of God didn't necessarily mean his divinity because everyone was a son of God. Adam was called a son of God. The King Solomon was called the son of God. The psalmist calls people little gods. And so for them to say, oh, I am a son of God, It didn't mean a whole lot. But the moment he said, I am the son of man, that image was reserved for the one and only Messiah, the Messiah that Daniel saw. And so here we have a full circle where we have the prophecy that was given to Daniel, did not make any sense to him, did not, as a matter of fact, at the end of the chapter, we read that he was troubled. He had it all interpreted for him, and yet he was troubled. He could not make sense of it all being fulfilled in front of the priest's eyes. Here's the son of man who's coming. But that prophecy is not complete. That son of man came once, but he has yet another coming. And this coming is what Jesus says, he will come up in the clouds. There is a day, dear friend, there is a day that's coming where he will come back where he will come back. The son of man will come back. He will receive us his kingdom. He will receive us back into his kingdoms to make us rulers as he had always called us to be. In in verse 27, we read, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. That's you and me. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and dominion shall serve and obey, obey them. This is what he has promised you. He has already started the work. He will complete it pretty soon. We don't know when. We don't know how. We don't know what all the details are. But here is the promise, especially in prophetical scriptures, that no matter what you're facing, no matter what kingdoms come against you, no matter what trials you may face, there is a resolution. And the resolution is that he is God. He is still on the throne and he will be victorious. And we, along with him, we're in it for the ride. We're in it. We will be called up as rulers along with him. We will be given dominion. We will be given kingdoms is what the scripture promises us. And so this morning, as we close here, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. But let me ask you, let's go back to that original question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because society will define him a certain way. 
And as we mentioned, they will define him on their parameters, on their understanding of him. But the question is, how do you define him? Jesus defined himself. I am the son of man. The real question is, this morning, in the situations that you're in, in in the chaos that you may be facing, how do you define him? Is he your God? Is he your Lord? Is he God? Because if he is, there are certain implications. If he is truly God, then our lives ought to look a certain way. If he is truly Lord and Savior, then we ought to be surrendering to him. If he truly is God above all gods, what are we drawn to? If he truly is Lord and Savior, then we ought to be falling on our, on our knees. We ought to be surrendering all of our lives. We ought to be surrendering everything and calling him Lord. You see, Jesus saw himself as the son of man. Jesus saw himself a certain way. And he's calling his disciples and he's calling us today to reconcile that within ourselves. And before you leave this morning, I hope and I pray that you're able to reconcile who Jesus is truly to you. Who is Jesus? When it comes to Jesus, we can look back with the confidence that he is the son of man that Daniel prophesied about. And we can look forward with the confidence that he is coming for us. He is coming for his people. We can look back with the certainty that he died for our sins. And we can look forward that he will fulfill his promise to us. That he will receive us into his kingdom. That he will resolve all our tensions. That he will resolve the problems of our day. That every tear will be wiped away. Every pain will be resolved. There is a story of Howard Guinness. He saw Jesus properly. You see, he was a medical student who accepted the invitation to go to Canada from the UK just after he graduated. Howard bought a one-way ticket to proclaim the gospel on university campuses all throughout Canada and then moved on to Australia in the 1930s. He gave up what would be an incredible medical career And he prays this prayer. He asks this in in one of his books. And I'd love for us to take a moment to think about that. 1939, he writes this. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are they who will lose their lives for Christ, flinging them away for love for him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in service? Where are the men and women of prayer? Where are the men and women who count God's word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are the men who, like Moses of old, commune with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend? Where are God's men and women in this day of power? You see, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is truly Lord, we have to reconcile that with the way we live. It affects, it transforms us. 
So this morning, let's go, let's go into his presence, asking God, help us, help us, help us understand who you are, help us reconcile that within our own thoughts, within our own minds, and help us to line up our lives according to it. So would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your scripture that you have provided to us. You have given us, Lord, to remind us and to reassure us that you are God, that you're still on the throne. No matter how bad things get here on this earth, no matter how many kingdoms come and go, no matter how bad things may seem in our own lives, that you, are, you will still be on that throne, that you will be victorious at the end of the day, and everything that opposes you will be destroyed, and every just injustice will be made right, every pain will be, will be relieved, every hurt will be, will be mended, every tear will be, will be wiped away. Thank you that we can look back with the certainty of knowing that you have done, you have revealed in the past, and that you will continue to do that in the future. We look forward with confidence, knowing that our Savior is on the way, our Jesus is on his way back to receive us to his kingdom, to receive us to a life eternal, to receive us to a relationship with you. For that we thank you. Lord, help us today. Holy Spirit, move in us, enforce in us who you are, and enforce in us, remind us of your grace to us. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.